Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by no other than Brad Amos, Emeritus Scientist at MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology and Visiting Associate at the Strathclyde. And we discuss failing to retire... Uh, I'm like most scientists, um, I, I don't really retire. I, it's not a desk job, it's a, a mind job and your mind keeps, keeps you a, a scientist. His really varied career trajectory. My career has been a kind of a vertiginous um, uh, series of uh, switchbacks. His legendary lab skits. There were some very chaotic um, performances. And the importance of keeping your hands out of the way when scuba diving. We sat, uh, Linda, Linda and I, on a, a sandy bank at a depth of about um, five metres. Um, and he was waving these fish about and the, these, these reef sharks came around. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, welcome to this episode of The Microscopists. I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today I'm joined by Brad Amos from, well, Emeritus MRC, the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, and uh, part-time at the University of Strathclyde. So I would say retired, but definitely not retired, are you? No, I, I, um, I'm like most scientists, um, I, I don't really retire. It's not a desk job. It's a, a mind job and your mind keeps, keeps you a, a scientist. Uh, but I, I'm unusually lucky because I, I've got a, uh, a house which I've equipped over the years with three workshops for mechanical and optical work. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I have the equipment to, uh, to carry on to some extent, except um, I can't quite manufacture a wet lab, so I, I can't really do as much staining and, and so on as I, as I used to. Yeah, and actually, supplying a wet lab, even the optics, it's not, it's not a cheap game. Right. So, uh, yeah, I presume funding is more limited, except your collaboration maybe with Gail McConnell at Strathclyde and the funding. Yeah, that's the key thing. And uh, that means I can stay in the swim. Um, uh, <clears throat> and uh, that has been uh, enormously valuable. Um, I should have pointed out, actually, to those who are listening on whether it be iTunes, Spotify, Google, Amazon, RSS, whichever platform it is, that actually Brad has sent through some really entertaining pictures as well as serious pictures uh, so actually it's worth just skimming at least the youtube channel but the first one i'll show because we just talked about gail so here you are with gail which i presume is in strathclyde itself is that correct that, that's right and the um the instrument on the right is the is the meso lens um which has been uh, built into a a confocal microscope by uh gail which is a fairly ambitious and successful uh, engineering operation um, 
the original MesoLens, as we designed it, had no eyepieces um, and uh, was very difficult to, to change from confocal to camera mode. Um, and so Gail has basically taken um, all of that on. Um, her colleague, John Dempster, is um, uh, a, a, a person who supplied software free to all the electrophysiologists in the world. And he's, he's made a software for the, the, the meso lens as well. And the lens designer, um, Ez Reed, is, is one of the, the uh, top lens designers in, in the UK. So he's a key person as well. But he, he works with classical optics, with dispersion of the ordinary type. And so Gail can uh, get together with him and tell him about nonlinear optics and what you need for a, a multi-photon system and so on. So it, it's, uh, it's not only a, a comprehensive team, but it's an extremely rare team that, um, that, that uh, I, I've been lucky enough to, to be associated with. Now, I, I, I've jumped in almost to, the, to today, instead of going from the past to today, but actually the, the meso lens is, is very famous in the microscopy world. Uh, and anyone who is listening that isn't familiar with the meso lens, uh, you may have used your school microscopes or microscopes at university, and the lenses are typically thumb-sized, maybe, and, and broader. They're not significantly large, but the meso lens is, go on, Brad, you'll know the dimensions of a meso lens. Well, the largest elements are uh, about 64 millimeters in, in diameter. And the total, the total length of the, the meso lens is, is about 50 centimeters. So it's as long as an arm. And uh, I do have a photo which I should have sent you, which is the complete meso lens dwarfing an entire uh, 1890 brass microscope. Um, so it, it, it's huge and it, it has to be huge uh, to achieve the, the, the optical effect that, that um, we want, which is a very large field, six millimeters in diameter, and also very high resolution. Obviously, you can look at a large field just with an ordinary stereo microscope, but you can't have resolution so high that you can't see it in the eyepieces. And that's, that's what we were uh, aiming at because um, all the objectives that people have used at school and, and um, uh, in universities uh, and, and other places have been basically the same for a hundred years in that they have been designed to suit the human eye. But there's no reason to stay with that restriction now that we have cameras that have an angular acu acuity greater than the human eye looking into an eyepiece. So uh, the idea of the meso lens is you can get in one shot uh, what would ordinarily have to be put together by um, uh, tiling and stitching the, the area with uh, normal um, objectives of, of similar numerical aperture to the meso lens. But the, the, the problem with it is that um, none of the microscope manufacturers uh, are interested in 
in manufacturing this because it doesn't connect to any of their existing um, equipment. Uh, one major company, which uh, shall remain nameless, uh, has told me that um, they are watching. And if Gail and I are successful in getting sales of the Miso lens, they will simply make their own. They won't, uh, they won't pay royalties or, or, and the reason given was that their engineers are too proud that um, someone has exceeded them in, in their, to admit that someone exceeded them in their, their own special technology. Uh, and, and so uh, we know where we stand. Um, <laughs> if we succeed, we fail. Um, but the converse is not true. Um, but if you uh, succeed, there'll be other companies that would like access. And this does actually the field, the type of biological questions that this can address would also be would be wide and varied. There's lots of other companies, non-specialist optical companies that would very much like to get into this type of field as well, especially with the uh, spatial omics technologies that are coming out now that need that high, that, that large field of view for area selections. So there is potential. And for anyone who's scared about the, the size of the lens, I think Brad said sort of the size of the arm, think about a telescope. You know, if you're, a, as a bird watcher, a telescope, it's no different to that, really. So it, it's, it's kind of just different not wrong and i think that's a, a key take home but it's it's been good fun to watch it and i really look forward to seeing the next developments of it and i think gail here has to be a guest uh with us at some point on the microscopist because she's very sharp uh yes and also very yes, and, and um she has now um many uh projects which have some are independent but of the meso lens but others have arisen and and she's discovered lots of, of uh, uh, things that, that we, we didn't know before. So, for example, um, uh, her group of, uh, found that um, bacteria in, in colonies growing on agar actually create nutritive channels uh, and suck in nutrients. So, in other words, you can have a prokaryotic cell um, and yet it can have organs by, by cooperation. It can develop a vascular system. Uh, and uh, it needed the meso lens to actually see these uh, rather subtle um, um, channels. And so another big project uh, is to um, combine the meso lens with the light sheet principle so that um, we can have the high resolution, the, the the, the, the one-shot acquisition of a huge amount of data. Um, but we can have the speed of a camera. So we, we have the massive parallelism of a camera. But then the, the thing is that the camera has to, or has to be an, a, a, a very, very uh, special one yeah. because um, we really need something like 150 megapixels to capture everything in the meso lens image I, I want one of those on my camera but they they, they haven't done one yet um, it'd probably be bigger than that actually as a chip the chip size would probably be larger than the, the whole camera yes 
Yes, well, the ones that Gail has found uh, and uses at the moment have a, uh, a, a fairly standard size chip, but it has a piezo uh, driver which moves the chip around to 10 yeah. different positions, oh, sorry, nine different positions. And so um, you get nine images and you can work out the equivalent of having nine times as many uh, pixels in the final uh, result. But that slows the, the thing down. And uh, uh, that's that's exactly what we don't want to do. Yeah. So <clears throat> actually, just, just there was something interesting you said actually about Gale's study and what she's found with uh, bacteria on agar. Gail is, if I'm not wrong, a physicist by training uh, and, and a pioneer in, uh, she, she was one of the first professors, I think, of physics, certainly at Strathclyde, I believe. Uh, so trailblazing there. But you yourself are not a lot, well, I, I don't think, but weren't you a zoologist to start with? Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, I, I, I've done lots of different things. And my career has been a kind of a vertiginous um, uh, series of uh, switchbacks in, in which I've, I, I, venturing into zoology was uh, perhaps rather a mistake, um, but I made many mistakes. And each time I changed, I morphed into something different. And, and uh, I, I was always interested in optics. Um, and uh, I, I had to learn optics extremely quickly. Um, and I had two, two advantages. One was that when I started uh, doing research in zoology, the um, professor of zoology at the time had just been appointed, um, brought to Cambridge, uh, a collection of very, very fancy microscopes from Copenhagen. And um, we quickly uh, had a, a rapport and I was the only person who was allowed to use this Aladdin's cave of microscopes. So I, I, I learned about fancy interference microscopes and, and so on. And then uh, when I, uh, managed to team up with um, uh, John White, which uh, happened at, during one of the the worst dips in my in my switchback career. Um, I I uh, worked with his uh, system and brought a more reasonable microscope anatomy to it, um, but. Uh, when we were already in negotiations with a manufacturer and when the world was beginning to become very curious about what we were doing and when we had a paper in uh, J-cell biology uh, which was creating a stir, um, I started to look at double stained preparations and I found it, it didn't work. Um, the two images taken with the stains of different colors actually had different magnifications. So the two images didn't superimpose. And the problem was that in the 
in the optical system that we'd built using improvised lenses and not really knowing much about optics, um, we had chromatic aberration. And I had to act quickly. Um, and I, I had a, a, a eureka mo moment, which is, is very rare in, in, in science. Uh, uh, I, I happened to have some concave mirrors and I, uh, I don't know what it tells you about my psychology, but I had the habit of idly looking at my own eye with a concave mirror, because the iris is a very intricate and interesting structure. So I was looking and then I tilted the mirror and I was pleased to see that the resolution in the visible image was good, even when the angle was so great that I was beginning to see my eyebrow. Uh, if I went further and tried to look at my forehead, it was hopeless. The, the astigmatism uh, and other aberrations began to, to, to kick in. So without any knowledge of optics or any modeling in a software, uh, I suddenly realized that I had the basis of a high angle scanner, which is what we needed because we were making a, a, what John White called the shoe box. We were making a box which would fit on to any microscope, would look through the, the resident eyepiece and would scan. But that meant the scanner had to do plus or minus 20 degrees, 40 degrees total scan at least. And that is quite exacting so far as optical quality is concerned. So I put together this scanner and you see at the bottom, there is the eyepiece and then the two uh, vibrating galvo mirrors are between two um, uh, concave mirrors, which are the, the, the discs at the bottom of the diagram. Um, and that worked extremely well. Uh, I didn't really, uh, model it. Um, I, I just, um, uh, I happened to have acquired um, mainly out of bloody mindedness uh, because I, I, uh, I, I was at a, uh, uh, one of the dips in my career, a, a small lathe and milling machine. And I, I made a, a rig to hold concave mirrors and two plane mirrors to represent the, the Galvo mirrors. And um, uh, I made it totally adjustable and I rushed into the lab with it and uh, John White and uh, Mick Fordham, um, who was the head of the workshops in the LMB at the time, um, just uh, grabbed it out of my hands and began to work with it. And within uh, a couple of hours, they discovered that if they adjusted uh, the two mirrors, they could get linear scan lines from a laser. And this was, this was a, in, in retrospect, it didn't seem uh, so surprising. But later on, I discovered that this was a known um, proposal, for, which was in prior art in the literature. Uh, for a scanning system, but the in the words of the the patent attorneys, 
the author had taught away from this, saying that such a scanner was useless because it gave curved scan lines. So you know, between us, the, the three of us had, had, had solved that problem. But um, we, I, I took out a, 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 about five uh, optical patents which were granted and a few more that didn't get granted. Um, and uh, that particular one for the scanner um, didn't give us any protection because uh, when the big microscope companies started making confocal microscopes, they didn't have to use their own eyepieces because they could substitute a lens of long focal length that had the right chromatic correction and so on to suit their objectives. We, that's secret information. We couldn't do that, yeah. but they did it, and it meant they could have a scanner uh, of a much simpler uh, type, uh, which was just basically two galvos close together and a long focal length lens instead of the eyepiece, which had a focal length of only about 30 millimeters, uh, usually. So um, I, I was in optics by necessity, and I had to learn very quickly um what to do so this i love that this is branching off in all sorts of directions because you mentioned a low point uh, and one of the one of the, one of the questions i always like to ask is you know, what was the lowest time what was the most difficult period that you had but before we go there obviously you're pioneering in your optics with john white to get to there uh spun out into become the biorad confocal microscopes uh of which one of the that last generation was the Biorad Radiance systems, uh, which actually was my first confocal. So I have oh. very fond memories of my Radiance. Uh, I loved my Radiance. Uh, right, right, right. I, well, I, I, towards the end um, of the, 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 the period with, with Biorad, I, I, I decided the Radiance was a, a good design, but that uh, if we were um, clever, we could we could reduce the build cost enormously, and the, the 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 sales price could be about a third of a, a confocal microscope. So it's even cheaper than the radians. Yeah, I remember um, the cell but, map. Um, that, the cell um, map? Um, sorry, was it the cell map? The cell map. Yes, yeah, I remember map. it. That, um, I, but I, that, I remember. that um, unfortunately, even though people had started to buy it, uh, they never got it uh, because we were taken over mm -hmm. and the, uh, the UK confocal business was closed and, uh, and so on. So um, that, that was uh, one of the lowest points actually, but it, it was not the only one. And the, the one that I, I'm talking about uh, that I mentioned earlier uh, was um, actually when I had um, uh, abandoned my early research topic, which was uh, uh, a different form of contractility from muscle, which occurs in uh, ciliated protozoa, such as vorticella, which is a little pond organism. Um, I, I had to uh, abandon that um, because the project became very difficult and also my uh, uh, 
patron in a sense, um, Weisfoe, uh, the Danish professor with the microscopes, um, uh, died. Um, and um, uh, it was a very traumatic period because uh, his wife was killed in a road accident and he progressively deteriorated and became a very difficult uh, man. And then he committed suicide. So that led to my uh, having a, a, a difficult time. I was looking for a job because I'd lost my patron, which is uh, gross carelessness in a system with a lot of patronage. And I um, uh, decided that what I'd done wrong was I had um, worked on something which was a, not of not mainline. It wasn't mainline cell biology. Yeah. So I flung myself into a monoclonal antibody project, um, uh, which I could start by sneaking into the MRC lab, which in those days was never locked. Um, you could just walk in. And my wife worked there, so I could get in and out easily. And she gave me some of her bench space to, to, to work on. And I, I, I uh, had a, a project where I was helped by um, John Kilmartin, who was a, a brilliant um, uh, biochemist, and also by uh, 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 Bob Johnson back in, in zoology, who was an expert in cell fusion and by uh, Yair Argon, who taught me how to make monoclonals, how to fuse the cells, uh, uh, the myeloma cells with the, the, the spleen. And I took the spleens out of the mice. I uh, uh, had uh, prepared the antigen. Um, I selected the monoclonals. Uh, I prepared screens for the monoclonals by immunofluorescence using synchronized HeLa cells, which involved staying up most of the night, um, compressing uh, cultures in nitrous oxide according to a very strict time schedule. In fact, I was trying to do what would normally be done by a large research group all on my own. And I succeeded. I actually got some monoclonals, um, which had interesting immunofluorescent distributions in the mitotic HeLa cells. Uh, they looked as if, the, well, there were some that were restricted to the condensed chromatin. Others uh, were on the microtubules and not all of them turned out to be antitubulin. Um, maintaining them, uh, I found that they were slowly dancing away they stopped producing uh the 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 teeter of antibody went down and down from the cultures and the and the gurus in the lmb who were the leaders in the world yeah. at that time said oh bad luck it sometimes happens uh these hybrids they just lose chromosomes so that, that's tough. But for me, that was a, a very low time. I, you know, I, 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 with John Kilmartin's help, I'd, I got a two-year grant from the MRC and that was over. So I had no salary uh, and I have no antibodies and no result from two years of 
very, very hard work. Um, so that was why uh, discovering that John White, who is a tremendous uh, polymath and, and uh, works on, on uh, the nematode uh, brain and uh, uh, is also uh, able to command the very latest in digital and also good old analog electronics. Um, uh, uh, he, he had realized the importance of beam scanning, set up a, a confocal microscope using the time base of an old oscilloscope to, to drive, the, uh, drive the scan. Um, and he was, he was getting results. Um, and uh, so he agreed with alacrity to my proposition to modernize the microscope and, and you know, equip it with things like transmitted light, which it didn't have. And, and uh, uh, we were both very excited. So we, he, he used to come towards the end of the day and say, uh, should, we, should we carry on with this tonight? And I used to go in and we'd work until midnight, uh, uh, night after night, um, doing all kinds of crazy things. I, I, I needed a finder slide that worked in fluorescence. Um, so I got some microfilm, which was still being produced in those days. And I made a contact copy of a finder slide on microfilm because the blue stuff in the microfilm is actually fluorescent. So I could use those to get before and after images. So that was essential for the J-cell biology paper that, that um, made us famous. It was essential to have the very same cell or the same group of cells uh, with the best you could achieve uh, with conventional optics and the confocal results side by side. And uh, uh, we, we did all of that and I, I used my, my HeLa synchronized cells um, as specimens. And I also got my biological cronies to bring many different things because uh, otherwise we would have only had HeLa and nematodes. So we, we uh, but I, at that time I thought that I would just be finding specimens and, uh, and, and finding microscopes and attaching them to the confocal in different ways. Uh, and I, I was really delighted to make this contribution of the, the scanning system because that, uh, that, that did actually save our bacon. We, we would not have been successful with something that couldn't handle double staining. Yeah, um, which we've all benefited from and, and now not just double staining but three four five six yes, kind of staining yes there. exactly the exactly. lmb sounds like a sounds like everyone works hard <clears throat> it's it, it, it is an amazing environment you've got that sort of hotbed of innovation yes working to midnight but it's not all and this is where the pictures get really entertaining because i believe this is you as robin hood yes um, yes, well, my, as soon as I started on the, uh, the confocal thing, I, I changed my, my uh, 
penurious uh, state, uh, I got a salary uh, from Biorad, incidentally. So they paid me as if I was an MRC employee. So I was like Voltaire, who, who lived on the boundary between two countries uh, and could always skip across uh, into one when the other proved to disapprove. And this meant that I could have these uh, uh, quite satirical skits. Um, and uh, that particular one concerned the history of the lab and uh, the succession, one director by uh, another. And uh, the, uh, uh, on the screen, it has a, a, a slightly altered um, uh, Beatles um, theme. Um, and uh, uh, the, the theme was always about uh, the problems, the real problems of being uh, a researcher. And uh, I, I was always amazed that um, there was so much talent suppressed in the lab. So I, I used to think of a, a theme, sometimes it was a pantomime, once it was the, uh, the, the temptation of Faust based on Marlowe's version. And, and there were lots of other things. Uh, we had one thing based on the full Monty. And the number of volunteers uh, was amazing and their abilities were just, in, you would never believe it. There, there was a, a Dutch um, girl who came forward and said that she had been trained in stage sword, sword fighting. So um, we had a version of Robin Hood, which I managed to twist around so that we had some stage sword fighting uh, and uh, uh, the we, we had two two women fighting with um uh, they were supposed to be kind of ninja warriors and i i made swords for them i was all too close to these swishing blades and i was rather relieved when uh one of them uh dropped down as if killed and um the dutch girl then picked up her head and held it up and it was a head that I had made to resemble the, the actress um, uh, out of papier-mâché. And the, the whole audience went kind of, <gasps> it was a coup de, coup de théâtre. And, and very, the whole thing was, was, was just terrific. And I, I, I enjoyed it immensely because um, uh, it, it always involved going into the lab on a cold winter night and suddenly out of the darkness you went into a lighted area with all these young people excited and and uh, uh, ready to uh, to go on on stage and um of course the people i lampooned or attacked um didn't dare object because uh, they knew they had to keep smiling even if they resented it um, so so uh, uh, it became so popular that I became fireproof and financially I was as well. So, um, so <laughs> I love it. Was, it. It was great. And what um, should do it. People, very senior people, I won't give names except for Cesar Milstein. Uh, otherwise, you would suspect me of doing a typical 
bit of Cambridge name dropping, but they were willing to act. Cesar was willing to play uh, one of the cleaners in the lab. And uh, I had him come on stage with a bottle of uh, uh, the cleaning uh, spray and say, uh, oh, they tell me to uh, clean the floor. I don't even how I clean the floor. I, I just spray it with varnish because we had all these dirty lino floors, which had never been cleaned, but grew glossier and glossier. <laughs> but Cesar proved to be um, totally out of control. And he kept coming on stage and spraying the feet of the people on stage. So there, there, were, there were some very chaotic um, performances. Did you write these skits yourself, each other? I, I, there's a couple more pictures. So this, I presume, is you as the Pope? That, that was from Faust, and I was, uh, I was the Pope, which had, a, uh, it had the Spanish uh, element in the lab uh, a bit um, embarrassed because they, they were good Catholics. And uh, this was long ago, not so far from the, the Franco era when you, you didn't say anything about church or government. And um, uh, they actually changed after that performance and they became more and more excited to play satirical parts in the skits. Um, at first it was the Spanish women who wanted to take part, but then the men would come and lean on them and say, say if, if you do this, no man will look at me, look at you and, and, and they bring, uh, you bring shame on your family and so on. But um, uh, I remember one Spanish girl, uh, I, I made a song for her, which was about how people who joined Cesar's lab invariably became pregnant uh, soon after. And uh, the, it was in Spanish. And the remedy, la, la solución, was cinturón de castidad, a chastity belt for all newcomers to the lab. Um, and she, I thought, was going to chicken out at the last minute. So I grabbed her arm and we went on stage together and we both sang in Spanish um, uh, about this. Uh, and for a year after that, uh, people in the elevator or wherever would start talking to me in Spanish because they, they thought that my <laughs> vocabulary was enough. But it, it, it didn't extend beyond Cinturon de Castidad, which is not terribly useful for... Uh, Marking <laughs> off a sprightly cosery in 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 in, in Spanish. And, and for um, the next picture, I presume you are still doing these skits because this looks rather current. So uh, this slide is is from after I had retired. Um, Chris Ubridge, who was a staff member at LMB, uh, took over uh, the the writing of the script, and he he really restored the comic aspect because it had been getting a bit gloomy in my um, time. And he asked me to play Boris Johnson. So I came back out of retirement for a, a cameo performance. And uh, the issue was that uh, Boris comes on, on stage uh, to inquire into who are foreign in, in the lab and to, to get rid of them, uh, get, get rid of the, the foreign academics. 
Um, and um, there's a lot of uh, stuff about, uh, well, well the, the English student who is not foreign was actually played by a Polish guy whose English was impeccable. <laughs> and he's the one who gets sent off um, because he, he says he doesn't actually watch Bake Off. And so um, Boris then said, oh, no Bake Off, Johnny Foreigner. And, and has him off stage. Yeah, yeah. He's the one wearing the England football top for those that are listening. <laughs> that's, that's, I just love the humour and there's a place for humour. And I, back at Essex, we used to have a, an annual play similar by the student, by the postgraduate students that ripped all the academics off. Any, any faux pas they'd made during the year would come back and haunt them each year. Yes. It was good for team spirit. It was good for morale. It was good for breaking down barriers. Uh, yes, yes. and um, as time went on, um, my skits became uh, less uh, about lam lampooning the, the senior figures and more about the general plight of, of people uh, in, in research. And... Uh, uh, I had a, a, a version of the Beatles' Penny Lane, which was 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 about uh, the the, re the research student uh, uh, throwing uh, their their chance and 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 having their last turn of the roulette um, because of a tremendous risk of doing research. And I actually had some people in the audience actually in tears. Uh, over that. So the skits had sort of morphed into um, uh, something uh, 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 more communal and more uh, less uh, less of a, a, a comedy show. Um, uh, but there we are. But I, I did do other things. It, it was only one month in each year that I, I Devoted to. You skit. talked enough about evenings in the lab making lenses and samples <laughs> and uh, test light. Uh, we, we do, don't worry, Brad, we're not thinking you're spending all your time doing skits. Uh, you sent me this picture, and this is a complete change of subject. We, this is your drawing, I presume, of a. Correct. Oh, you, you tell us, what, what's it a drawing of? Because I'll get it wrong. This is a squirrel fish, an endemic species of ascension. Island, which is one of the string of islands that runs across the the Atlantic. Um, and, and you did this yourself? I painted it for Roger Lubbock, who was um, a zoologist, um, because after um, my zoological phase, when when the um, uh, the Danish uh, professor died, um, I. Uh, I became more zoological because of um, uh, striking up an acquaintance with a, uh, an ichthyologist who was extremely brilliant um, and had been uh, misguided in, by his school. Uh, the school had sent him to Oxford uh, as a historian not realizing that he was a scientist, even though uh, he had kept tanks at school and was obsessed with fish and 
uh, went scuba diving and so on. You, you may have heard of the school, it's called Eton College, uh, but they got this completely wrong. And uh, Christchurch in Oxford said to him, do you realize that you're a scientist? Go away, do some A-levels in scientific subject, and then come back and, and we'll look at you. Um, so they saw something in him and it was actually uh, considerable intellectual brilliance. Um, when he arrived in Cambridge, I was in my state of despond because of the death of my, my uh, protector in a way. Um, and Roger turned up and um, he, he started asking me things. He, he was a confident Etonian. So if you wanted to know something, he just went and asked somebody, had no compunction about disturbing them or anything. Very, very confident. And I ended up being his unofficial supervisor and teaching him about science and about, uh, if you can believe it, mathematics even. And I remember he came to me once and he said, um, Brad, these, these exponential logarithms that you're telling me about, they're bloody good, aren't they? Uh, well, why did they, why did they teach me about logs to the base 10? Because the exponential ones are so much better, um, uh, which makes him sound like an idiot, but he wasn't no idiot. He, 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 he uh, got a personal um, MRC grant to study um, self, non-self distinction by Silenterates. Um, and uh, he taught uh, Linda, my wife, uh, my, my late wife and, and, and me, uh, how to scuba dive. And uh, we oh, ended these, up- These notes? Yes. Yeah, yep. this, is, this is a picture of, uh, I'm the one standing up uh, in the uh, outrigger canoe. And this is off the island of Palawan in the, the Philippines, which is, is, uh, is one of these uh, places that uh, you must go there if you're a, a zoologist or a shell collector or anything like that. Palawan in the Sulu Sea is a place to conjure with. Um, and, and uh, wife, I think, the, on this the, um, if you go back to that, can you go back to the previous yeah, of course I can. slide? Um, the person in the sea, in the scuba outfit, who you can't see, uh, but who took that picture was my wife. Um, ah. So uh, she and, and Roger dived in the Philippines and uh, I couldn't because um, I developed a tropical head cold. So I, I couldn't um, put my head more than more than one meter below the surface of the sea without intense pain. So um, uh, anyway, um, the next picture shows um, uh, Linda on a, a, a holiday that we had uh, in in the uh, the Maldives. Uh, she's on a crowded uh, dive boat, and and that's her in the foreground with the yellow. Um, adjustable buoyancy um, yeah. life jacket. And um, we, she was incredibly brave because she, she already was, uh, 
showing some return of the multiple sclerosis, which appeared in the earliest years of our marriage. It was coming back, but she still uh, learned to scuba dive and she, she, uh, she dived with me. Uh, we, we dived off that boat um, among sharks because the guy standing up, uh, Helmut uh, Voitmann, uh, as a crazy German who liked to go down and uh, holding fish in steel reinforced gloves uh, would feed them to sharks. Uh, so we, we, we sat, uh, Linda, Linda and I, on a, a sandy bank at a depth of about um, five meters. Um, and he was waving these fish about and the, these these reef sharks came around and you didn't see them bite. You simply saw them cruise by. There was a flash because they jerked their head up faster than you can really follow it by eye. And there was the fish halved and a little blood floating in the, in the, in the water. Uh, so uh, this was completely mad, uh, uh, the whole business, but um, uh, we did it. He, he just informed us beforehand that um, if a shark, if the shark comes to you, you do not put out your hand. He just wishes to know if you are British or Spanish. If you put out your hand, he will take it. So we sat with our hands tucked in as, as, as well as we possibly could and, and, and we survived. You're braver um, than I would be. Hmm. But I, I did nearly kill myself once scuba <coughs> diving, but that, that's another story. Uh, back to the fish, because yes. I believe from the pictures you sent me has another story as well behind it. Or yes. is that another fish? That's right. Well, um, I was um, working in the lab and two uh, extremely polite uh, gentlemen in tweed suits turned up. Um, and they explained that they were both company directors who had retired and were now working as crown agents. So they were working for the queen and they were responsible for uh, the design of uh, British uh, postage stamps. And they wanted my painting, the, the painting that's behind you is one that they wanted to use on a stamp for Ascension Island. And it's the, the bottom left uh, one, that's the squirrel fish. Um, and uh, so I, I got um, uh, that uh, first day cover and the picture returned. And, um, and that, that was my, um, my, my royal duty uh, executed. <clears throat> Unfortunately, uh, I, although I thought at one time I might be a painter, uh, my painting has been, and, and drawing has been really reduced to um, uh, illustrating Roger's uh, ichthyological things uh, and um, uh, diagrams for scientific purposes. And uh, at the start of the confocal project, I was um, 
using all of my faculties, my, my, uh, when, when Biorad started to manufacture, because Biorad were uh, not terribly interested in putting any money into it. So John White and I had to really work hard to make sure that the thing succeeded. Uh, together, we worked on the production line uh, to get systems shipped off to the USA. Um, and I was drawing from then on quite a lot because I had to do the engineering drawings for all of the um, the scan head components, all of the adapters to fit uh, the MRC 500 and all the other microscopes to, to different microscopes. Uh, so I would take my drawings, which were, uh, uh, there was no CAD um, in those days, or it was barely available. So I had, there were Indian ink on, on uh, faint blue graph paper, and I would go to all of the subcontractors and all too often um, I'd be discussing the drawing with the subcontractor, the guy who was actually going to carve metal, um, and the financial person in the company would come in and say, we love to talk to you, Brad, but I'm, I'm afraid we can't do it anymore because Biorad have not paid their bills. So the, the company was really, really nickel and diming all the time. Yeah. The, there, there are many stories about the, uh, uh, the president of this international company who was so pathologically mean um, that um, he influenced the whole outfit. And uh, there was nobody hired for R&D for two years. So I was the R&D, I was the promotion, making uh, two Far East trips, which could be quite long, uh, three USA trips and several Europe trips um, in a year. And uh, I got the opportunity to learn about uh, American and Japanese, um, Korean and Thai uh, culture. So it was very interesting but also tremendously uh, uh, exhausting because I was also having to write patents uh, at the time. And um, uh, my, my wife said, you, you're able to live like a Renaissance man because the company is such crap. Um, and that, that really was the situation. Uh, later on, they slowly began to hire people, but um, the basic problem was that they were interested in consumables and not, not in Equipment. selling instruments. The, the, the secret of the company's success was uh, um, making HPLC uh, kit, yeah. but that, that trapped every hospital into buying mm. the consumables, including standard urine. Uh, and, and other things perpetually. Um, so they, they weren't so keen on, on British people. They weren't so keen on microscopes either. So um, <clears throat> thinking about going to traveling to all these places, 
Uh, some quick fire questions. What's your favorite food? Been to all these places, what is your favorite food? If you were to be taken out for dinner, what would you order? I was terrifically fond of um, sashimi and uh, 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 the, the, the tuna and the, the, uh, the shrimp and so on that I had in Japan was always fantastic. Um, I confess that I also tried um, whale meat. Um, now, my family, uh, when they had lived in Liverpool during the war, had been a, uh, obliged to sometimes eat whale meat. It's totally disgusting, auto-digested ru rubbish. But the uh, the uh, the whale meat that figured in Japanese cuisine was absolutely delicious. Um, and um, of course, I used the uh, the, the rather uh, feeble moral excuse that the, the whale had already been killed, so it made no difference whether I ate it or not. But um, anyway, it, it, it was delicious. That's never going to hold out as an argument, and we know that one. Uh, what's your least favourite food? Is there any food you really don't like? There is one particular Indian dish which is called murgi mosolia, and it makes me throw up. So I think it contains some antigen uh, to which I'm allergic. I have no other food allergies at all. It's just that one particular dish. Okay. Uh, are you an early bird or night owl? I tend to slide later and later. Um, and um, yeah, that, 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 that um, that causes problems because you, you have to just stop it eventually and try and reset yourself. Um, That's interesting. Uh, tea or coffee? Oh, coffee. Um, uh, I have uh, a vast consumption of, uh, of, of, of coffee. Um, uh, and um, uh, yes, I, I, uh, I used to grind it. Uh, but now I, I, I use pre-ground coffee, so I, I lowered my standards a little bit. But, um, for, for the there's a place for everything in this world. There's a place for everything still. Actually, you can improve the taste of coffee by adding a tiny touch of salt. And there's a Viennese trick where you add a tiny little bit of chocolate to the coffee before you uh, allow it to percolate. Okay, I was going to say what type of coffee then at that point. Beer or wine? Sorry? Beer or wine? Um, I've, <clears throat> I, I confess, I've, I've kind of taken to having a Stella Artois um, in the evening. Um, and uh, uh, I used not to be uh, a beer drinker at all, but... Um, uh, I find that very, it's very convenient and um, uh, I just go to the fridge and I get my, uh, my Stella. Uh, wine drinking is difficult if you're on your own. I, I'm now living with my younger son who does not drink um, wine 
and so it's 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 quite difficult. I I I love um, uh, um, especially um, uh, uh, Burgundy, um, and I, I like the 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 Rhone wines as well. But um, uh, I I I don't really get much chance to uh, uh, to drink. It would be a solitary occupation, which would be no fun. Okay, chocolate or cheese? Chocolate or cheese? Cheese. Um, so sweet or savoury, I guess. Uh, yes. Yeah. I uh, I'm very partial to a a, a nice brie or um, um, or a Stilton. Um, I think I. I do get easily sickened by chocolate because um, maybe because I tend to eat eat the lot in one go. Um, but um, uh, cheese um, cheese is 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 my one of my gourmet treats. You should go dark chocolate then. It's always by my side. You don't tend to gorge so much. Just snack on it. Mm. Mac or PC. Um, PC, because as soon as you start working with a company, you tend to have to use a PC. Um, the software for the original Confocal from Biorad was uh, an IBM 286 PC, because Richard Durbin, uh, who's now a, a head of, well, he was head of the, the World Human Genome Project, but he, he wrote the software as a favor to his supervisor, John White, and uh, he tried to use the Mac because everyone in the LMB uses a Mac, but he found that um, Apple were too secretive about their operating system. And it, it just, he had to follow the pattern of industry in, in um, using a PC. Okay. McDonald's or Burger King? Uh, try to avoid both, I think. Okay, that, that's a fair enough answer. Book or TV? Sorry, which or TV? Yeah, book or TV? Oh, book or TV. Um, I, I, I don't watch TV very much now, except for the news. Um, and my, my taste in books is um, uh, something like Joe Nesbrook, um, Scandi Noir, when I'm just wanting to do something and, and have, have a horror story from, from Norway instead of thinking. Um, but uh, I, I've tended more to read um, Need non-fiction, um, and I, I'm very uh, uh, impressed with um, uh, the, um, uh, the the William Sargent book, which I've I've looked at again and again, all, all actually all my life, uh, called the the Battle for the Mind, because I think it's highly relevant to our current situation in the world and in politics. Sargent was a, uh, I don't know if you know the book. No, no, he, I don't. He, was a, he was a Cambridge psychologist who dealt with 
World War II shell shock victims and people who had uh, suffered uh, uh, brainwashing and, and terrible tortures and so on. And he put together this book, which examines how the human mind can be, can be washed and the prerequisites for successfully getting ideas to penetrate into the human brain. And this has become a, a, a major interest for me. Um, and uh, I, it's maybe not appropriate, but I, I, to summarize briefly, Sargent found that all uh, religious cults, uh, including things of uh, the um, Laplanders, uh, North American Indians, um, Catholic uh, 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 liturgy uh, and, and other things had the same quality of rhythmic chanting at about the same frequency, about the frequency of the human heart. Um, and he, he explains how when you, when you have fear in your mind, your mind is very susceptible to suggestion and uh, you will accept things which are uh, manifestly untrue, that would not be accepted by the thinking side of your, your brain. Um, and uh, I have a, a feeling that we need to do that kind of analysis. There are interesting scientific experiments in experimental psychology that that I could describe, but I won't. Uh, but the situation now is that every country in the world has more or less simultaneously uh, given itself over to strong men. At the same time, we have the notion of climate change and that the synchrony of all of these events all over the world in different cultures suggests to me that human beings are afraid now and that uh, they have become susceptible to the political uh, persuasion. Um, and I, I think there is a part of the brain uh, which is, is particularly uh, non-logical and is a receptor. And to have it, I think, is actually adaptive because we, we now know that our closest relative, the chimpanzee, um, is not like other monkeys. It's very like us, however, because the males go out in a formation, a military formation, and they go around the perimeter of their territory and they murder any chimpanzee and occasionally other monkeys as well who comes within the territory. This is exactly what we do. And this is why humane, civilized, cultured nations, uh, which have parliaments, uh, even with uh, women MPs and so on, can become fascist, as happened in Weimar Germany. Um, and uh, so you can have uh, 
the, the logical brain, but you can also have within it this capacity to commit genocide. And I think that it's actually, as a, as a zoologist, you've got to explain everything in terms of evolution. And I fear that we have this built into our brains it, so that we can receive things like war cries and act on them. And uh, the word um, slogan is interesting because political slogans, I think, can go into the brain uh, with this William Sargent type conditioning. Um, the word slogan is actually Scottish Gaelic and Irish Gaelic for a war cry. And um, I didn't know that. Uh, I've gone on too long about this issue, but I. I uh, uh, yeah, and yeah, very. Uh, we can't end on that somber note. <laughs> so, and, and we've gone over the hour by a few minutes, actually. So, I'm going to ask you a couple of other quick questions. Are you a tidy or a messy person? I am grotesquely messy with terrible long periods when I vow to be tidy. I tidy everything and it takes me an hour to mess it all up again. <laughs> and do you have any bad habits? Um, oh, the old man's uh, tendency to blether. Um, which um, is uh, roundly pointed out when I go to Scotland, but um, uh, that's, that's good for me to have it, to be reminded. Um, <clears throat> but, but there was a couple of things that we, we didn't get through, but it's up to the hour. I've got to get, because I love this picture. This picture you sent was when you were, I think from the text you sent me was when you were 14, is that correct? Yes, and it, it, it represents one of my mistakes because I thought that this was science. I thought that a beautiful drawing was actually doing science. I didn't realize that for research, you very seldom need uh, beautiful drawings. So I, I got it all wrong. I neglected my maths. <laughs> I, I, I just didn't understand. And it was, uh, but it was a microscope picture when you were 14. It was through a yes, microscope. It, it was taken with a brass size microscope um, with a, a British made um, low power objective uh, stuck on it. Yes. It's a stunning picture and at the age of 14, which is amazing. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for taking your time today because I, I very much appreciate it. Uh, I look forward to being part of your next skit, which no doubt might, might end up being the case. Uh, thank you everyone for listening, watching, uh, this episode of the microscopist please don't forget to subscribe to whichever channel you're on and i hope we get gail soon on this yes. brad thank you very much again thank you for having me <clears throat> it's a pleasure thank you for agreeing thank you for listening to the microscopists a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by zeiss microscopy to view all audio and video recordings from this series please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists